Welcome to the Love Fly podcast. Paul Tizar, Fear of Flying Coach. And today's guest is somebody I've known for a long, long time. He's got a fascinating story in terms of how he's one of the original cabin crew that started with Virgin Atlantic. Over the years of knowing Pete, he's shared these stories. And I just thought it'd be great for the Lovefly audience to hear from somebody who started all those years ago, what it was like with a, a new airline start with nothing in place. And I just thought it was really interesting. So today that's the plan. So welcome, Pete. Hello, how are you? Very good. Yeah. So Pete Alvarez, I can't never say your proper say your name properly because I'm always impressed you can do it. Um, say that again. <laughs> there you go. So it's just been Pete to me. So, so when I knew Pete, we were Pete was in charge of customer service training at Virgin Atlantic. But prior to that, you had a, a long career as cabin crew for Virgin and from yeah. the, the start. But you also worked for Laker before, was that? I, Laker? I worked for Laker Airways, which probably a lot of people won't even know. Interestingly enough, the uh, what last beginning of last month last february was the 40th anniversary of the demise of laker airways so um, it went bust in uh, 1982 february yeah well it was a great airline it was started by a chap called sir freddie laker and it was a very much a no frills airline so he was the the real the father of no frills airlines i mean all the, the easy jets and ryanairs they all really owe their you know their successes i think to to, to freddie laker and then I was very shortly employed by an American airline called World Airways, just after Laker went bust. And that didn't last very long. And then I joined, well, interestingly enough, I joined the airline, which at the time, just before I joined, was called British Atlantic, because uh, Richard Branson wanted to, uh, sorry, a chap called Randolph Fields, an American lawyer, very wealthy man. He, he wanted to start an airline, and it was called British Atlantic, and it had various ex-Laker bigwigs involved with it, not Freddie, but at the time. But anyway, they didn't have enough money, so they approached Richard uh, Branson, and he got involved, and of course it had to be called Virgin Atlantic. So that's yes. how it started, interestingly. So yes, I I joined Virgin before they actually started flying, back in 84, sort of about April, where they were literally what is known as a paper airline, as in it exists on paper, but not in any other way. And we, the airline's original offices were in a place called Woodstock Street, just off Oxford Street in London, which were the old Air Florida offices, another airline that had just gone bust. So very interesting, you know, when you think about it, Richard Branson coming in to start an airline in a time when it wasn't a very good time. But oh. Branson being Branson, you know, he, he just, he, as you know, as well as I do, working with him in the past, he, um, you know, there's no such thing as no and can't and won't in his vocabulary. You know? So it was great. And what great was day. it like in those early days? So, there was, so how many were there of you? To kind of tell us a bit of a story, what it was like in those offices well, and with him um, running around. In the in the offices, I mean, there was he had people. We had people from the Virgin Megastore employed, and they were just all sent down. If they weren't working a shift at the Megastore, they were sent down to the office. We were just about to start, so I think the first flight the flight was scheduled to be 
June the 22nd, I think, of 84. And this would have been sort of April time. And because I'd been employed to start as cabin crew, they contacted me and said, we need people to help out in the office. Are you free? And I, I was. So I said, yes. But it's the most extraordinary time. And I'd be in the office and, and there would be the marketing director, the finance director and all the other people all sitting around. And of course, in those days, everyone, you know, those people who smoked could smoke. There were ashtrays and smoke everywhere. And Richard Branson would turn up every now and again and say things to people and then disappear off. And and then suddenly, as the, they started to sell tickets, money would come in. But money would come in in like checks and actual cash. So I can remember sitting around this table, um, <laughs> all this money, you know, envelopes would open these money and, you know, and trying to sort it all out. And, and I, can, I can remember, I, I know memory plays tricks on you, but I, I, you know, I do know this a long time ago, I do remember actually carrying a bag of, I don't know, several thousand pounds worth of checks and cash on the tune to, and I can't remember where it was, but to Coots Bank, which was Richard Branson's bank. I mean, can you imagine, you know, the, it's, it's just madness, absolute madness. Um, so you but, were all sat around, so they started selling tickets. Yeah. So how did you do all the sort of the legal stuff and the safety side? How did all that happen? I mean, well, I mean, from a from a legal point of view, obviously we had people there involved. My job at the time was simply just to help out. I mean, literally from anything from putting plugs on whatever to, as I say, carrying the money. I I never got involved with with being on the switchboard taking calls. One or two of my colleagues did, but I I, I never I got away from that because it's just like I knew nothing about it. But we were selling. And this is an interesting story. We were selling tickets. Again, at the time, they decided to have two classes on board the aircraft. We had upper class, which is what they still call it. They're sort of enhanced business. But at the time, upper class was a a first class service. I'll tell you a bit about that in a minute, what my role was. But they they had this wacky idea that they were going to have upper class and they were going to have lower class. Or No, sorry, they were called... It was, yeah, it was, it started as lower class, and then someone, nice. it might be even Branson, who came up with the idea, oh, we'll call it riffraff. So <laughs> the original two classes were that. riffraff. But they, that, thankfully, that never got through. I think it was pointed out that it probably wouldn't be, people wouldn't really take kindly to walking through an airport terminal with a ticket with riffraff you know, on their suitcase. Anyway, yeah, but uh, that would, they then decided that they, this service they were going to have was going to be like, the old days and the very old days of flying, if you look back at the records, I mean, when the original 747, the 100 series, when they started operating that, they had sort of pianos upstairs. And, you know, and, and so I think Richard wanted to go back to those days. And I mean, is that you probably remember that wonderful quote when Richard was asked by a, um, a reporter at the time, well, what, what was it was why you why are you starting an airline with everybody else like Laker and everyone else going bust? Or no, and I said, why, why are you going into the transportation business? That was it. He said, we're not going into the transportation business. We're going into the entertainment business at, at 36,000 feet. You know, so it was like that really set the tone and we knew yeah. what that meant. It was amazing, really. Yeah, and, so, and, and I think back at the time, you know, you didn't have your easy jets, your riot, you didn't no. have the cheap tickets, you just had the sort of the big monsters like Monarch, British Airways, 
British uh, Catholic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They must. You must have looked like a bunch of crazies compared to oh, all those traditional. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they thought we were nuts. Probably were. I think we. You know, they probably were. I just we had this sort of just unstinting desire to make it work, and I genuinely believe that's what did it. And as again, you know, I can remember a bit later on, Richard Brantz would come into the crew room. You know, the, the as you know, the room where the crew meet before they get together to go on to the or, or get on to go to the flight. And he would just sit there with his notebook and he'd ask questions and say, "Well, what do you think we ought to do?" and things like that. And then three weeks later, you see your idea, you know, come into fruition. Amazing days, amazing days. Yeah, going back to the the flight, the the, the various classes, the upper class. They decided they were going to make it very, very grand. Um, mm. I was one of 12, uh, and we were, we were known as in-flight butlers. And so <laughs> I can remember being taken up to Savile Row to have a full tails boat, you know, mm. the whole works made. I've still got it. I can't get into it, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Not now, anyway. But, yeah, absolutely amazing. And... And we were trained at a place called Maxine's in Paris, uh, Maxine's of Paris, but in their London branch. Um, so they, they, we went through all the training of silver service and how to open a bottle of champagne properly and you know, how to serve wine and all that stuff. Great fun. And then when we did start flying, you had to carry not only your bag, your, your suitcase, and not only your, as you know, a cabin bag, your carry-on bag with all the stuff you need for the flight, but also this suit carrier full of this stuff which you changed into on the aeroplane upstairs. <laughs> Absolutely nuts. That, so did had... that, was that popular? Did people go for it? Well, yes and no. I mean, it was very expensive. It was, in fact, and again, I uh, don't quote me on this, but and it's just my recollection, but I remember something like £1,333 each way, or one way, which I believe was just about the same price as Concord, so... You know, it was, um, and Concord, of course, got you there a lot quicker, but nowhere near as much fun, I don't suppose. No. But we had... And was it fun? Was it... I can't... I can't oh, really. We had on in-flight entertainment. I mean, as a real... Richard gave out that if, for entertainers, all sorts, you know, singers, magicians, poets, all sorts of stuff, that they their flight would be paid for. And I think uh, their first night of accommodation in New York or London, if they're going the other way, uh, and they would do this in-flight entertainment. I, actually, I don't think we did it on the way, but I think it was only on the way out. But anyway, whatever. And uh, we had all sorts of people come along and they would just literally go around doing close-up magic to people, doing songs, doing you know, all sorts of things like that. Yeah. and just um, in upper class, not in riffraff. No, that was everywhere. That oh, was throughout really? the whole, yeah, throughout the whole but area. even the poor people were able to enjoy the even entertainment. The poor people got a free, a free poet, <laughs> poem or a, something like that. Yeah. But I mean, the food, I mean, I'd still got the menus somewhere. We had uh, like beluga caviar. I mean, you know, really expensive beluga caviar mm. and lobster, really good champagne and all that stuff. Uh, I mean, the food and quail and all stuff. Obviously, like yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Well, who doesn't? Um, it was brilliant. Interestingly, you went, going back to your point about was it popular? Yes and no. It was popular in the sense that we carried quite a few people, but a lot of them were the kind of rich and famous, and a lot of them were the, the current pop stars on the Virgin label. 
who were traveling across and I don't suppose they paid for it. But a, a couple of memorable things for me. Uh, one, I remember we had Brian Ferry. Uh, he was going across and it was just him and his wife. Uh, it, the, just uh, the upper deck of the Stat 747, our very first one, was uh, it had eight first-class seats upstairs with a lounge area at the back. And uh, I think he, he paid for the whole lot, so it just him and his wife could be on their own. And, and they were charming, lovely, lovely people. And the other one, which is a big one I remember, was Sister Sledge, the group Sister Sledge. And oh, yeah. As, yeah, you, again, it's one of those sort of USPs, as they call it now, unique selling point for Virgin. We, when For the, the boarding music and stuff, we didn't have, like British Airways would have Mantovani or the like Sam Singers or something. You know, we had the current, you know, raw stuff that was going on at the time, if you can call it that, of which one of them was Sister Sledge. I can't and imagine that as boarding music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Doing Frankie. You know, Frankie, the, the, anyway. And um, they were on board. They, would, they were on the upper deck, the, the whole family, because they were literally, they were a family with their mother, who was their manager, and uh, they had quite a few other people down the back, you know, their crew, their team. But they were all upstairs. And it, it just so happened, I'd just gone been downstairs to grab a tray of champagne to bring it up the spiral staircase, and Frankie starts coming on the PA system of the boarding music. And then they all get up and start dancing to their own song. And I'm just standing there with my tray of champagne, watching Sister Sledge give, giving me a personal performance. Oh, amazing. And that was quite extraordinary, quite surreal, really. Mm. I think even the pilots came out to watch as well, because they can hear it as well. Yeah. That's just, it, it sounds mad now, but it, it really oh. was. I mean, at the now, we, we sort of take it for granted. And, and, and Virgin is a lot more grown up. I know it's a long time yeah. since you left, and same for me. Uh, but do you think back to those early days? It was, it was that was quite anarchic, wasn't it? It was, but but but, and I think a big but. We we took it seriously. We had fun, but everything in terms of like safety and everything. Again, to go back, we only had the one aeroplane. To Romeo Golf, as it was known in the in the business, maiden Voyager. Incidentally, a, a nice bit of a story about that that aircraft. Bear in mind, 1984 was kind of, um, you know, not long after the Falklands, uh, Falklands War. And as you know, it was Argentina was the thing. Now, we, we were contracted, we being Virgin, were contracted to carry troops from the UK down to the Falklands because I think their, one of their aircraft was going into maintenance. So as often happens, they'll just put out a tender and Virgin got the, the agreement to carry the troops down. And uh, I was lucky to, enough to be on the one of those flights um, because it, it stopped at Ascension Island on the way down. So I was on the leg going from Gatwick or, no, I think it was Bryce Norton, remember rightly? Anyway, Bryce Norton to Ascension Island and then another crew would take it on from there to the Falklands, which is what happened, is it? You know, good fun. I, I'm, uh, I managed to stay in Ascension, it was good fun. But what's in, the interesting fact is that that aircraft, had a was second hand. Richard bought it, I think he's as he says in one of his books, you know, the, the biggest check he'd ever written out, like 20 million or something, whatever it was. And that aircraft had previously been operated by Argentine Airlines, Aerolinas Argentinas. 
Now, so that was that was the first aircraft to land in the Falklands, <laughs> well, the first Argentinian aircraft to land in the Falklands after the Falklands War, albeit under virgin colours. That's quite interesting. Oh, that's a good story. No, yeah. I knew you'd. I knew you'd have loads of stories like this. So, <laughs> you took it seriously. You had all the safety stuff in, in place. I mean, how did people respond to this idea of this sort of crazy entrepreneur setting up an airline? I think it was mixed. I, I think you had that kind of, oh, you know, what does he know about it? Sort of old school approach. Mm. But then you had the other people. I think the, the kind of the young yuppie types who were willing to give it a go and supported it. And, and I think, yeah, it was very much down into those sort of camps. But again, going back to that, I think, very serious point, the, the safety, the maintenance and everything was done by people who had been in the business many years. They weren't like, you know, just off the streets. These were professionals, knew what they were doing. And it was actually done by British Caledonian. British Caledonian used to do the maintenance. British Airways did. Um, we, we did all our cabin uh, safety training at British Airways at Crane Bank, you know, which and they are hugely, you know, professional outfits. So we, it was all done properly. And, and it go, goes back to that point. The CAA, the Civil Aviation Authority, is not going to grant a license to an airline if he doesn't know what he's doing and if he doesn't have the right equipment and training. So, so mm. you know, we felt we were we were safe in that sense, if, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, yeah, it does. I think that's reassuring to know because people see. Sometimes people say to me, "Oh, there's this new airline started up. I've never heard of them," and I say to them, "Well, at some point." EasyJet, no one had heard of them. No one had heard of Virgin. You know, everyone has a, a new, you know, they are new at some point. It's just whether then, I mean, remember when EasyJet came along, everyone was like, oh, they won't last. They, they're not going to make any money. Look at them now. I know, absolutely incredible. You know, £12 tickets and things like that. People go, nah, it's rubbish. And here exactly. you go. It just goes to show that actually safety can still be to a level, but you absolutely. reinvent the model. I mean, Virgin did the same, didn't they? They were doing, but just not in a very different way. But you can challenge these established things, but all within the realms of keeping it commercially safe and all the rest of it. And I think that's really interesting. So I wanted to say, when did you stop being a butler? I mean, obviously, it's probably still in you, isn't it? You know, there's there's a certain way you carry yourself. Which <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, the, the thing was, that that upper class service, the first class with the butlers and everything, it didn't last that long. It was only a few months. It, it you know, I think I don't think people were really the the business people weren't really prepared to pay for this. I don't think so. They had a rethink and decided to get rid of that level of service. Still have that, you know, call it upper class. But it, but it was really an enhanced business class compared with other carriers. Though again, they set the trend for that. Other airlines, when they put business class, it was just bigger seat, really. Yeah. A bit more service and stuff. But what is now, they call sort of like premium economy almost. You know, things have moved on. But at the time, so we still had the seats and, and everything and the lounge upstairs so, uh, and the bar area as well, which was nice where passengers could just go to during the during a flight, you know, take off and literally stand around chatting. So again, that was lovely from our point of view, and you may well remember as well. You know, you used to sit there and have conversations with sort of you know really well known famous people. You know, it's quite fun. 
So, who, so you said a couple of. So let's do some name dropping then. <laughs> <laughs> who? Yeah, so when you think back to people that you met, or because yeah. you've always got loads of stories, who who kind of stands out to you? Well, I, again, the sister sledge and the, the Brian Ferry was one. There were um, we carried. Oh, who's the chap from the Who? Small chap, curly hair. You know what I mean? Not Roger Daltrey. Yeah, Daltrey, yeah, he was he was on he was really nice. Um, I was also I do remember again I'm really bad with names, but Woody uh, Keith, well no, not Keith Wood, Ron Wood from the Stones. Oh yeah, yeah. He, he gave me a, a plectrum with his name on it, which I've still got some. <laughs> we have one or two royals, which I can't really say too much about. <laughs> and they all, were they all right? You'd have to say who they were. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I get, get. They were incognito, so, you know, they were, people didn't know they were on board. Right. But that happened a lot. Mm. Which is interesting because you think, I mean, was that the younger ones or the older ones? Because the Virgin would have been kind of fairly younger. Young. Yeah. Younger. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. <laughs> You've gone into the secretive mode now, Peter. I wasn't expecting that side of you. <laughs> How long did it take for the airline to sort of start doing more than a couple of routes? Because you know, I, I I joined in probably, when was it, 93? And it, it I think you had about eight aircraft then? Yes. We went from one aircraft in 84. We then got a second aircraft, I think, in 85 or 86. And that's when we doubled doubled our fleet to two aeroplanes. <laughs> Uh, that's, I think, when we started doing Miami from Rica. And then we did LA. Uh, then I remember, I do remember when we bought two secondhand aircraft from Singapore Airlines. I can't remember what they, which ones those were now. But I remember being part of the team that went to, over to pick them up. And that was great fun because we'd arrived there and we had to go through all these tests and checks and we had a deadline because as of a certain time like midnight on one night the aircraft became legally virgins and no longer so if anything happened after that it was down to virgin to sort it out so i was part of the the in-flight team so we had engineers pilots the whole lot down there but we were part of the team that had to literally check every single galley, where all the ovens were, the storages, the, the clip, you know, the, the, the safety things for all the, you know, the containers, everything, the loose flush. The, <laughs> I can't remember exactly. But that was part of our role. Uh, but that was fun. And then we had to go up on a flight, take the flight up, and then the, the pilots would, you know, put it through its paces and just check everything was fine. Um, empty aircraft. Did you do any yeah, of that yeah, sliding yeah. on? Did any <laughs> passengers? No, no. Did you do any of the tricks? You know the stuff. You know, like uh, sliding on the trays down the, the aisles or any of that um, stuff. No, not not on that flight. <laughs> <laughs> You're being very secretive. No, I'm not. Really. <laughs> uh, I'm just people that might hear this and think, "Oh, blimey, he's giving away all that." <laughs> yeah, no. Well, well, let's let's put it this way. when there's no passengers on, you no. you know, you can relax a bit, can't you? No, so, and, and also, you know, it was great fun because we. I mean, I, I do. Do you remember on the lower deck of 
one of the aircraft, you know, the MIA, one MIA. MIA, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you had the um, uh, the little place you could look through at the undercarriage. Do you remember yes. that? Yeah. And that was a real no-no on, you know, to watch that on landing, um, which some people did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which well, but, we used to feel that was normally on. That would have been on a, you know. A flight where you didn't have passengers on, obviously. Mm. <laughs> no, I think it's. Uh, I love all those stuff, and I love the the fact that the the energy that. So even when I joined, I felt there was a lot of energy about it. What what kept you at Virgin? Because you ended up going for working your way through the ranks and becoming like a big senior, <laughs> senior manager and all the rest well, of it. Again, that was just one of those bits of luck, really. I because my before I I went into aviation, I'd been working in sort of what was then called personnel, now they call HR, human remains. I was, my role really was an administrative role, but within the training and uh, education and training department, ENT it was called. And the the manager, a guy called uh, Gordon McKenzie at the time, who was manager of cabin crew, he just said to me one day, I can't remember where it was, I said, oh, didn't you used to be involved with training? And I said, well, yes, you know, yeah, I did. He said, well, you know, we, we, as we're growing, we need to start thinking about having our own training department rather than farming it out to other people. Would you be interested? And I said, well, yeah, it'd be great. So literally the training department of Virgin, of the cabin crew, consisted of five of us all together. We were all ex-crew from other airlines. So I think we had a good representation. We had British Airways, Saudi Airlines, Laker, a couple of others, I can't remember, between us. And we literally uh, got together, this team of five of us, and we went to a couple couple of the guys, uh, Tim and Dave, you remember them? They, uh, we went, literally went, sat around their kitchen table and said, right, well, where where do we start? What do we do? We need to come up with a training, a proper training department uh, and training scheme to do all the, the, the aspects, the, um, the, the safety training, the in-flight service training, the, the AVMED, the aviation medicine training and all that. Um, so we just literally put that all together. This was before computers or anything like that. So we were all writing things down. and We, we all brought in our manuals from our, that we'd managed to purloin from other ex-airlines and, and come up with the best bits. And I think that's what we did. We created a really good training set, of course. Um, taking all the best bits, you know, from all the different people, yeah. and, that, and that worked out really well. That, that seems bizarre to think of that because by the time I joined the training department, there was about fifty or so people in there. I know, I know. Well, again, I I, I had a little sp- uh, time when I I left that actually left cabin crew section to go over to work for Virgin's. Um, of the main thing within the commercial air I was commercial training manager but I'll be honest it just wasn't it wasn't me I I really missed the the buzz of being amongst flying people so I was lucky enough to get given the role of the um, as you say the cabin crew and customer service training manager so I was responsible for the training of all the cabin crew which is well of course where you came in with with the in, in flight I mean, flight skills I was yes flight skills yes service training I mean I yeah. I was there a couple of years and then I started the Flying Without Fear program. I remember that. Yeah, so it's uh, it, seems, it seems like a million years ago now, doesn't it? But it does. Like, I mean, it, it might, you know, I'm sort of remembering things I thought I'd forgotten, which is quite amazing. Yeah, 
there's good 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 to, good days from my point of view i still uh, i was able to still fly occasionally but as you you know as you know you you have to fly within a certain amount of time otherwise you lose your you know license and all that stuff so it got to a stage when i just couldn't carry on doing that and keeping up to date current currently with all the different safety aspects of different airplanes and, and i just thought i'm going to stop that and, and then i just concentrated on the management side of stuff so i ended up with i think it was about 74 people in the department in the end which was quite extraordinary and yeah. that all just started so i, I love that listening to that and i was because you know when i came in it wasn't even that big then but it was yeah. just hearing the, the journey going from like nothing mm. and then helping out in the office and then being a butler and then flying yeah. and then working way up and it, i just think it's it's really interesting and now when you look at it it's just like a mature sophisticated airline yeah. uh, i still see some elements of the original spirit there but it's a bit more probably not grown up that's the wrong word but just mature i guess isn't it yeah i guess yeah i mean i i, I haven't actually been on a virgin plane for quite a few years now um, mm. I'm hoping to now that we seem to be coming out of this COVID stuff. I'm so, hoping. To. So one of the things I always ask people at the end of the, you know, near getting the end of the interview is to say, you know, based on your experience, mm. of, you know, and, it, and it's been quite extensive, different airlines and all the rest of it. Yeah. What sort of messages would you give to nervous flyers who don't feel as sure about flying as as we both are? I think. For me, it's quite simply that that object that's flying through the air is not there. It just didn't happen by accident. It, it's the amount of work and expertise that goes into designing it, keeping it going, flying it and everything is extraordinary. And I can honestly say that in my entire flying career, and that was many, many years, uh, flying as well as everything else, you know, I never ever once doubted the capability of any of the people I worked with to mm. ensure that everything was absolutely right. And I've been on flights when they have decided not to, 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 to you know, to, to, to wait until something was absolutely right. And it could be something that you, you, you get into your car <laughs> and you go off it. Oh, I should have checked the tunnel, but I'll carry on. That doesn't happen in aviation, no. you know? <laughs> It just doesn't happen. So things like that uh, just make you realise that it is. And again, you go back to the old statistics. It is the safest form of travel. There's no question about it. It really did you, is. Did you ever have any flights where you were a bit, a bit? It was a bit scary, like a bit turbulent or something. You thought, oh, what oh, the hell was that? I've had. Oh, blimey! I mean, I, I've had those. I remember one particular one, which was uh, that was in Laker Airways. In Laker, we had the seven oh sevens as well mm. as DC-10s, and I was on a 707. I think we were flying over, we were doing the, the the leg across the States from Bangor to Maine, and that goes over some pretty mountainous terrain, and you get a yeah. lot of clear air turbulence over that, as you know. Yeah. And we, I was working down the back of the aeroplane, and one of the services we had in, in Laker is we used to serve wine with a meal, which sounds very grand, but it was actually <laughs> trays with these little, almost like, sample the bo bottle you know little plastic things about that size <laughs> the cheapest wine you came arrived in a big you know <laughs> big vat you know <laughs> on wheels <laughs> anyway 
And we used to make these up in like red wine, white wine, red wine, whatever. And then we'd go out with these things, giving each passenger one of these. But we'd laid all the wines up and they were on the back galley, you know, shelving. And then we were told to go and strap into the jump seats because we were anticipating some turbulence. And we did. (laughs) And I can remember sitting down, strapped into my seat at the very back of the aircraft and watching these trays (laughs) literally lift. And they seem to stay there for ages, <laughs> almost like, you know, in space. And then there's crash down. And then the wine just like everywhere. I was covered in it and everything. Because <laughs> yeah. the thing is that, you know, that's a real thing that happened. When you get that type of turbulence, you, you know, you're strapped in to be safe. But did, were you worried at all? Did you have any Ooh. concerns? No, I never, I never was. The, the only time that I, I mean, I, I did tell you about I had an emergency landing at Manchester mm. which was again that was on a 707 so bearing in mind that 707 is no longer fly well I don't not in our world they don't fly they might operate them as cargo carriers in parts of the world I don't know but they certainly don't not operate commercially not not, not in, in our mm. area and there was just a problem with the undercarriage the front undercarriage hadn't, hadn't locked down apparently so and these, those are the days when the flight engineer could go out into the cabin with one of these uh, things like they used to use for, you know, starting an old car. And there was a little thing, literally, and he'd lift up his pad in, in the middle of the aisle, you know, passengers <laughs> watching it and start doing this to lower the undercarriage, you know, to make it go. And then that, they did that. And it, didn't, it didn't show on the screen, on their screen on the flight mm. deck that it was locked down. So they... We had a full emergency landing at Manchester. I mean, literally, you know, fire engines and everything following us. Uh, he put the brakes on pretty quick, but it was absolutely fun. It yeah. was a big landing, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, it's... Uh... That was the only time, man. Uh, yes, you know, you get used to the turbulence, and, and, and I'm sure this is something that you you would tell people in your, on your, you know, your sessions and the things that you do. You know, you get used to the noises. It's a bit, you know, you you know when when it gets to that stage when they it sounds like they turn the engines off. <laughs> you know, we know that's quite normal. That's what happens yeah. every yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And I know a lot of the nervous passengers watch the crew, and yeah. uh, and they find that reassuring. I always say, don't do that because you know, if I came and watched you at your work, what conclusions would I draw? But I do know that. <laughs> <laughs> they do find it kind of reassuring. They're just going about their job, doing their work, you know, not worried about things, you know. So I think there's probably you have to decide what's works for you. But but then if somebody's run out of you know chicken and they're looking concerned, you could misread the signal. So this thing be very careful watching the crew, <laughs> especially as they're pulling faces at each other on their serving passengers. You know, of course I never did that, but I know other people did. Absolutely, yeah. Other people Oh, Pete. Uh, but uh, but one, one final thing, I think, from that yeah. sort of you know, thing about the, the fear of flying or whatever is uh, I always think of that, the, the, again, going back to that. I can remember when, unfortunately, there were a few incidents when I first started flying. We still had the, the IRA issues and stuff like that. And they were, you know, doing terrorist attacks in, in the UK and things. Then you had people, I can remember carrying Americans over for, he said, oh, you know, we were really worried about coming to England, going to London because of this, that. And you think, well, the, the chances 
of you being in that place. It's just like, you know, when that happens, it's so minimal. Don't worry about it. If we all worried about things like we would never do anything. We'd never get in a car. We'd never go to a theatre. We'd never go to cinema. We'd never get in a plane. We'd never go for a walk down the road, across the road. You know, just think about it. And going back to that point about, you know, every single flight that takes place is meticulously checked, every single aspect of it. And the CAA, and we're very lucky to be in a part of the world. The CAA is definitely, I think, recognised as probably the, the most stringent and most professional governing body of aviation in the world. So that's good. Oh, Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was amazing. It's been wonderful to uh, reminisce on this. Yeah, no, really. and I love the stories as well. It's just, it's great. I think there's a couple of new ones I hadn't heard there as oh, well. Really? So, yeah, so thank you for that. Welcome.